So we've come in, uh, in John's Gospel, we know, to the death of our Lord. And um, specifically, we've come to what happens to his body after he died and before he is taken down from the cross and, and buried. And what John wants us to see in what happens to the body of Jesus after he's dead is the further unfolding of God's salvation for you. So as we watch this, as we see this, as we behold what John describes, we behold our salvation unfurled, unfolded, and we are strengthened to not only believe, but live for him as we go out this week. So after Jesus bowed his head, And after Jesus gave up his spirit, we're told, then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, they asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be, so that they would die quicker, and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man, and of the other who was crucified with him, but coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has borne, I love this, I love this verse, he who has seen has borne witness. And we here today build our faith in part upon the witness he has borne. To us. He was seen and has borne witness, and his witness is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass in order that the scripture would be fulfilled. So here's the key. We're not just building our faith on, on his witness, but on the witness that he has borne in connection with the scriptures. And so, so that's the beauty of it. Uh, faith is, faith is, is eminently reasonable, right? But it's faith. And so we see that the soldiers choose not to... Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't finish the passage. So the scriptures will be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. So when the soldiers choose not to break the legs of Jesus, we see, we see with faith the filling up of Scripture. We see the saving power of Jesus' death as our Passover lamb. Not only that, but we see the guarantee that he'll be raised from the dead. And we see that because he is the true righteous one whom God has promised to deliver from death. God promised to deliver his righteous one from death. In the past, that meant he kept them from death. Now it means he will raise him out of death. And so we see the scriptures filled up in our Savior and our Redeemer in Jesus Christ. But what is it about the piercing of Jesus' side with a spear that calls us to believe? John answers, these things came to pass in order that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look toward him whom they pierced. Now we should know by now Right? You know there's more going on here than just, oh, that's cool. Right? We know that. So this is not, there was a verse in the Old Testament that, that, that John cherry picks 
out of everything around it and says, oh, it said he would be pierced. Look, there it is. And we're saying, that's cool. No. In fact, as we'll find out at the end of today, uh, not today, this, this message, we're going to find out that, that there was actually no scripture that prophesied that Jesus would be pierced with a sword, both with a spear. Um, therefore, this is not the fulfillment of a prediction. It's a deeper, more wonderful fulfillment than that. So, let's see what happens. Now, John is quoting from the prophet Zechariah. If you've been going to Sunday school, um, you've heard a bit of Zechariah recently when Neil was taking us through Haggai. Um, Zechariah was one of those Old Testament prophets. He was one of the last of the prophets. So, So he ministers after Israel is back in the land. They were exiled for their sin, for their rebellion, um, and now they're back in the land, and he's prophesying to the people, still under the rule of foreign powers, the Persians. Um, and so in Zechariah chapter 11, Zechariah role plays. And if you've read Ezekiel, or if you've read um, even Jeremiah, or, or certainly Zechariah, you see that sometimes God called his prophets to, to, to role play. We could call it... Um, 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 at sign acts. So they did an act, and the act was a sign with meaning. So Zechariah role plays first a good shepherd, and then, because of the good shepherd's rejection by the people, he role plays a foolish and worthless shepherd. Now before I, I, I kind of jumped into this really quick, but before I come back to this, I, I just want to say that when John quotes this one little verse from Zechariah, he assumes that everyone is knowing Zechariah. Um, maybe for perspective, when we read our Bibles, when you have a Bible reading plan, you know there's a lot of Bible reading plans. I'm not saying this is bad. I'm just saying this is kind of the way it is. A lot of the Bible reading plans, you read through the New Testament twice in a year, and how often do you read through the Old Testament in a year? Once, right? Because it's bigger and because it's old. Um, and so this is kind of the way that goes. But in fact, when John is writing his gospel, what was their Bible? Um, Their scripture was the Old Testament. It wasn't the Old Testament because it wasn't old, because it was just the scripture. That's what they read. I mean, that's what they they told to their children. So they knew Zechariah. Do we? Right? We we tend not to. And so we have a lot of catch-up work to do. And yet, the catch-up work to do is not just for the sake of catching up. It's for the process. It's good. It's beautiful because Zechariah is God's word. So let's see what happens in Zechariah. And then we're going to come back to John at the end of this. And I think we're going to be like, oh, wow. Wow. Look at the beauty. He calls us to believe. So Zechariah role plays a good shepherd and then a bad shepherd. The good shepherd that Zechariah role plays represents Yahweh. Now I'm going to refer to Yahweh because that's God's name, his covenant name. Even if we're pronouncing it wrong, we don't know for sure how it was pronounced. But we'll use that pronunciation. So Yahweh is God by his name as he reveals himself to us. So Zechariah role plays the good shepherd who represents Yahweh himself. And he is the good shepherd of his people. That's who he is. Now, that sounds good. We like the sound of a good shepherd, right? 
But yet the tone from the very get-go is one of judgment and destruction. So it's not very positive sounding. We read in verses 4 to 5. Thus says Yahweh my God. This is Zechariah talking. Shepherd the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and are not held guilty. And each of those who sell them says, Blessed be Yahweh, indeed, I have become rich. And their own shepherds do not spare them. So now in perspective, okay, in Zechariah's time, the slaughter was already happening. The slaughter was already going on. And it was still going on in Zechariah's time. So what this means is that Zechariah's shepherding of the flock, when Zechariah is going to pretend he's like the good shepherd, he's going to role play this good shepherd. When he does that, it's representing Yahweh's shepherding of his flock in the distant past, long ago, before the slaughter started. So Zechariah's like going back, he's like, now I'm going to be the good shepherd who shepherded you when everything was kind of better, before the slaughter. In other words, the point of his role-playing is not to prophesy something that's still to come in the future. He's going to explain and put into perspective the way things are now. Something that's already happened. Because sometimes we get into a spot, right, in our life, and we look back and we can't make sense of it. Well, maybe we should be able to make sense of it, but we can't. And so God is going to say, okay, you all are wondering about this? Let me explain it. Zechariah, let's act this out. Okay? So, because of the history that's already unfolded, it's obvious that this flock Zechariah is going to shepherd is a flock doomed to slaughter. The slaughter has been happening for quite a while now. We read in verse 6, For I will no longer spare... And, and, and this gets, there's a footnote there, don't read it right now. But this gets, a, there's a little bit of complexity, but I'm just saying that this, Jesus is, God is talking about what's already happened, even in these, they're not future tenses, there's no future in Hebrew. Imperfect. For I will no longer spare the inhabitants of the land, declares Yahweh. But behold, I will cause the men to fall, each into another's hand and into the hand of his king, and they will crush the land, and I will not deliver them from their hand. So here God God is saying to Zechariah, role play this good shepherd who pastures this flock doomed to slaughter, because that's how this role playing is going to end. And we know that, because what happened? Israel was exiled and destroyed by the Assyrians. Judah was exiled and destroyed by the Babylonians. And even in Zechariah's day, they're still destroyed by the kings of the earth and under oppression, and the slaughter continues. So we come to verse 7. So I shepherded the flock, doomed to slaughter, hence the afflicted of the flock. And I took for myself two staffs, and the one of the staffs I called favor, and the other staff I called union. So I shepherded the flock. When God went to Egypt, right? And he brought Israel out of Egypt with the ten plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea. The psalmist says that he, when, he, when he brought them out of Egypt, he led them like a flock. And the psalmist prays in Psalm 80, O shepherd of Israel, give ear, you who guide Joseph like a flock. 
So God is the good shepherd of his people. And when God shepherded his people in the past, this is how he did it. He poured out good blessings on his sheep. That was the staff called favor. There were no curses, right? There were not intended to be. He poured out his blessings on them. Not only that, but when God shepherded his flock in the past, he shepherded the flock in such a way that the flock was united together as one. There was only one flock because there was one shepherd. He united them together. And if you look into history, you see that especially when King David was the king. Right? In the early days of his son, King Solomon. And then things went bad. Things went sour really fast. So the role-playing continues. We see the story unfolding. in terms, And the story is being told in terms of a shepherd with his flock. Okay? Then Zechariah says, I annihilated the three shepherds in one month. And because I'm not preaching expositionally through Zechariah, we're not going to go into some of the details of this. I'm taking the fast view. And my soul was impatient with them with the flock, and their soul also detested me. Then I said, I will not shepherd you. What is to die, let it die, and what is to be annihilated, let it be annihilated, and let those who are left, or who remain, consume one another's flesh. It's a pretty ugly graphic picture, isn't it, if you really? That's one of the things about the prophets. They write and talk in such a way that it's designed to engage your mind with the, with the imagery. Sometimes beautiful and lovely and sometimes horrific and terrible. And that's what we see here. We see in this a picture, you know, the flock detested Zechariah. What we see a picture of how the people were always turning to idolatry and they rejected Yahweh as their shepherd said, we're the flock, but we don't, want, we don't want you, Yahweh, as our shepherd. And then we see a picture of how God's patience eventually ran out. So that he gave the people what they wanted. What did the people want? They wanted life without the shepherd. And so he would no longer shepherd the flock. He said, okay, I will not shepherd you. And they were left. When sheep are left without a shepherd, what happens? They're destroyed. They're eaten. They're devoured. And, in this case, this flock is an even worse flock than any natural flock of sheep that you'd have, because then they turn and they consume one another. We see that graphically fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem, when you had infighting even among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they turned to cannibalism, even eating and devouring one another, their own children. So Zechariah continues. And I took my staff, favor, and cut it in pieces to break my covenant, which I had cut with all the peoples. Again, details there that we can't look at now, but basically, instead of blessings, curses. So it was broken on that day, and thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of Yahweh. And I said to them, If it is good in your sight, give me my wages. So he's still role-playing, remember. This is all a role-play. This is all the sign act. Give me my wages, but if not, cease. Now, if you've got another translation, it'll say, if not, never mind, or something like that. 
It's literally, if not, stop it. If not, cease. I would suggest it means cease from your treatment of me as the shepherd. Stop your sin. Stop your rejection. Stop how you're acting. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then Yahweh said to me, throw it to the potter, that valuable price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of Yahweh. Now, I'm going to give a little different take on this than maybe is is usual. I don't think the picture here is that people didn't pay Zechariah enough. It's not like Zechariah is saying, you know, if not, give me my wages. And they gave him 30 shekels, and Zechariah said, and God said, oh, I wanted more money than that, right? All my service was worth more money than that. You know, as though any amount of money would be a sufficient valuation of Yahweh as the people's shepherd. I think the point is that the people were paying Zechariah off in order to be free of him as their shepherd. That's the picture in the role play. So that's why Zechariah says, if it is good in your sight, and we know what their sight is, Give me my wages, but if not, cease from detesting me. I think that's part of the role-playing here. So the people choose to give Zechariah his wages and show him the door. 30 shekels of silver was not actually an insignificant sum of money. A lot of times the point is made, well, 30 shekels of silver, that's, what, that's the amount of money that you uh, would pay for a slave, right? And so that, 30 shekels of silver was worthless. Well, a slave was a very valuable, very valuable thing. So the point isn't that 30 shekels was a measly sum in itself. In paying Zechariah off, what were the people doing? Who were they really paying off? Yahweh himself. Can you really put a price on Yahweh's shepherding? Of his people. That puts the 30 shekels of silver in a very different light. Hey, even 30,000 shekels of silver would have amounted to nothing more than an insult against the shepherd. Have you ever conceived of a flock acting like this flock? This is why Yahweh says to Zechariah, Throw it to the potter, and then look what he says. That valuable price at which I was valued by them. Now, Matthew, do you recognize this from the New Testament? Matthew sees in this rejection of Yahweh, he sees it fulfilled in Israel's rejection of Jesus. You you know when this happens, right? But fulfilled, not in the sense of matching a prediction, but in the sense of, here's the key, filling up a pattern. So in the Old Testament, you have this pattern, 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 pattern. And then the pattern is like a bucket that's finally filled up in Jesus. So in other words, if this was a prediction-type fulfillment, then it was a failed prediction. Because was Jesus ever paid 30 shekels of silver? In Zechariah, who's paid 30 shekels of silver? Zechariah, who, who role-plays Yahweh, the good shepherd. 
in, in the Gospels, Jesus is not paid 30 shekels. Judas is paid 30 shekels. Jesus did not throw 30 shekels of silver to the potter. So the 30 shekels of silver that Judas is paid, that Judas throws to the temple, and then that the chief priests use to buy the potter's field, that's all a little a set of circumstances that God is providentially guiding and ordering that's intended to point us back. We read that and we're like, oh man, that sounds a lot like stuff I read in Zechariah. We read Zechariah and, we help, and that helps us to see in Israel's rejection of Jesus the fulfillment or the filling up of Israel's centuries-long rejection of Yahweh. You see the, the picture? What, what the New Testament is constantly saying is, look, Israel... Israel rejected Yahweh time after time after time after time. And what happens? All that rejection is fulfilled in the rejection of Jesus. It's filled up. So here's the question for you. Okay? On the one hand, we're not surprised when the Messiah is rejected. Look what they've been doing forever. On the other hand, if we have in Israel's rejection of Jesus the final filling up of the rejection of Yahweh himself, here's my question, then who must Jesus be? If the rejection of Jesus is the final filling up and fulfillment of the centuries-long pattern of rejecting Yahweh, then who must Jesus be? And the answer to that is he must be Yahweh, incarnate. Here's the question then. Why would Yahweh come down in the flesh only to suffer this same rejection he's been, he's been experiencing for hundreds and even thousands of years in his own person? Zechariah's final act is his, in his role as the good shepherd is seen in verse 14. Then I cut in pieces my second staff, union. He already cut in pieces his first staff, favor. And he did this to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. We know when that happened, right? The days of Solomon, when the northern kingdom of of ten tribes was separated and divided from the southern kingdom of Judah. And so Israel is now two separate nations. And that division was a division. The flock is now divided. And that division festered and grew more full of animosity until finally it cemented in the exile. And then Ezekiel, another prophet, foretold that one day that division would be reversed. God would bring his flock back together again in the unity of God's new covenant people. So what does Jesus say? One flock with one shepherd. All right. Now that Zechariah has played the role of the good shepherd who was rejected by Israel, and that's Yahweh. He's looking, that's historical. He's looking to the past. Israel just constantly rejects God. Now God tells him, now play the role of a bad shepherd. So we read in Zechariah eleven fifteen to 16. Then Yahweh said to me, Take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish shepherd. 
For behold, I am going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who face annihilation. He will not seek the young or heal the broken or sustain the one standing, but will consume the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hooves. Okay, that shepherd represents all the bad Gentile kings, all the shepherds who were bad shepherds. So the Babylonians, the Persians, and then later the Greece, the Greeks and the Romans, and all their representatives, whether they're Gentile or Jewish. But the foolish shepherd is not God's final word. Woe to the worthless shepherd who forsakes the flock. A sword will be on his arm and on his right eye. His arm will be totally dried up. And there were Jewish worthless shepherds. Herod made his claim to being Jewish and was partly Jewish, and he was a worthless shepherd. All all sorts of worthless shepherds. But now God says, woe to those shepherds. His arm will be totally dried up. His right eye will be utterly dimmed. So one day God will destroy the worthless shepherds of the flock. And when he does that, he will once again shepherd his people in the person of Israel's king, the royal son of David. And that future king shepherd has been a big theme in Zechariah already. The scriptures are there. And it's this future day of salvation when all the bad shepherds are destroyed and God once again shepherds his flock through the Davidic king that we see pictured in Zechariah 12. Now, I'm not going to read the first nine verses. I'm leaving actually several portions out, but I hope you read it already maybe. Read it when you go home. But here's the picture of what happens. The first part of chapter 12 describes, it, it basically paints this picture of, okay, Jerusalem has all its enemies, but in this final day, all the enemies of Jerusalem are going to be destroyed. And God's going to use, even use Jerusalem, right, to be a cup of reeling and a cup of staggering to the nations, and they'll all be destroyed. Now, brothers and sisters, when we come to the New Testament, the New Testament writers, they read this stuff, and they say, ah, this Jerusalem is fulfilled in a heavenly Jerusalem. A city in which now we have been granted full citizenship. So when you read about the destruction of all the enemies of Jerusalem in Zechariah 12, you must read about that knowing you're a member, you are now a fellow citizen of that city. And so we see it being fulfilled at the end when Christ returns for his church and destroys all those who do not know God. Let me put it a different way. And, and I'm trying to help you see how we read the prophets in light of how Jesus read the prophets. How the apostles read the prophets. So it describes, this passage does, the final defeat of all the enemies of Israel. And you might say, Well, I'm not Israel, so I guess that doesn't have anything to do with me or my enemies. Well, we know from the New Testament that this Israel is fulfilled in the people of the New Covenant. Israel was a covenant people, right? Israel was the Old Covenant people. When God brings the New Covenant, it creates a new people, right? But the Jews who were in the Old Covenant, who believe in Jesus... They are, that is their covenant. They are now made into a new nation. So, so the, the, the Old Testament Jews, who were the God's covenant people, 
but not all of them believers. When the new covenant comes and they believe in Jesus of the new covenant, they are now recreated as a new kind of nation, a believing nation. And guess what? You and I, who are not Jews but Gentiles, are grafted in with those Jews into this nation, into this, what Paul calls this Israel of God. So when we read in the prophets about the future destruction of all the enemies of Israel, we read that as people who have now been grafted into that Israel and are a part of that Israel. And so we see that this is our hope. This is what we look for. So I'm I'm trying to help us see, because so often one of the reasons we don't read the Old Testament is because we can't see what it has to do with me, right? And it has everything to do with you with your hope, with your future. We know then that this day that Zechariah prophesies is going to come when Christ returns to rescue his church. Do we need to be rescued? Every day we need rescue, don't we? Every single day that we live, we need rescue. We need deliverance. We need, we need a Savior to come and take us out of this sinful, evil world surrounded by enemies. When he comes, he will not only rescue the church, he will then execute vengeance on all the enemies of Israel. On all our enemies, the new covenant people. On all the enemies of his people. But how can Yahweh save? Here's the question. How can Yahweh save the very sheep who have rejected him as their shepherd? What do we see in chapter 11? Constant rejection. Give them over to a bad shepherd. Now what do we see in chapter 12? One day I'm going to destroy all the bad shepherds and be, the sh- and be your shepherd again. Well, wait a minute. How can God do that? When the sheep have rejected him as their shepherd. Ah. Oh. The glory of the scriptures is the answer to that question. The second half of chapter 12 then answers that question. We look at verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look toward me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the weep, bitter weeping over a firstborn. Oh, let me just say now, did any of you recognize John there? You saw it, right? But now, isn't it awesome? Because now you have this verse coming in a bigger picture, in a bigger context. Ah, that's where that verse is. That's what's going on. And now it's the answer to a question we have. At one level, these words seem to come from out of the blue. Because what did we just read? We didn't actually just read it, but if we had read consecutively, we would have. We just read this. In that day, Yahweh will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, brothers and sisters, are you an inhabitant of Jerusalem? And we say yes, right? So you look at this. I am a citizen of Zion, of Jerusalem. And in that day, Yahweh will defend them. 
And the one who stumbles among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God and like the angel of Yahweh before them. And it will be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against my covenant people. Pictured as Jerusalem. So here we see the salvation of Yahweh's new covenant people. A people into which we ourselves have been grafted. So this, mean, this matters to us. And it's described in terms of the salvation of the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Okay, Very next verse. Very next verse. Okay, God's just got finished saving the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the house of David. And then we read this. We see the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem looking toward Yahweh, who is saving them, whom they have pierced. Whom they have pierced. On the one hand, these words seem to come from out of the blue. We ask ourselves the question, what does Yahweh's salvation of his people have to do with the people's piercing of Yahweh? Think about it. On the other hand, these words are not completely without any context. What was chapter 11? What happened to, what was, how were the people treating Yahweh the shepherd? He was rejected by his own flock. That's what happened historically for years, time and time again. Now we see that Israel's rejection of Yahweh as their shepherd will climax one day in the piercing of Yahweh. The word for pierced is used almost everywhere else in the Old Testament in a context of death by the sword. When we think pierced, um, especially when we, we've just read John, I think we think of, oh yes, piercing aside with a spear. But in the Old Testament context, it was death by the sword. So Judges 9.54, Abimelech called his armor bearer and said to him, draw your sword, put me to death. So the young man pierced him through, and he died. And there's many other scriptures you can read. We'll just read one other. Isaiah 13, anyone who is found will be pierced through. Anyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Now, here's my question, right? And this is the question they had. Who is it here in Zechariah that is pierced with the sword so that he dies? See, it's, it's Yahweh himself who says, They will look toward me, whom they have pierced. And the point of the pierced is the death that follows. How then is it possible that Yahweh can be pierced and die? Now, of course, on the one hand, that's not possible. Nothing is more impossible. How then should we understand God's own words? What is he saying? What he says, They will look toward me, whom they have pierced, says Yahweh, and they will mourn for him 
as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Who is this him? May we not give just simple Sunday school answers, right? How is it that in the piercing of this him, we have in essence the piercing of Yahweh himself? In fact, before we give the answer we have, because we're living today, how would the Jews in Zechariah's day have made sense of this? How do you think they would have tried to make sense of this? Well, first of all, remember this. Remember that it's Yahweh as Israel's shepherd. The people of Israel have not just rejected Yahweh. They've rejected Yahweh as their shepherd. And it's their, they've rejected him as Yahweh's shepherd. It's Yahweh as their shepherd who is rejected and pierced. Therefore, we can conclude that this him, over whom now the people weep and mourn, he must be the coming Davidic king, the one we know through whom Yahweh will shepherd his new covenant people. Right? Who is our shepherd, brothers and sisters? He's the Davidic king. So we read in Ezekiel 34, Then I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will shepherd them himself and be their shepherd. Micah chapter 5, As for you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel, and he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh. In the majesty of the name of Yahweh, his God. All right. So I say to myself, how do I pierce Yahweh? By piercing him. Well, the him must be God's representative, David. The one who shepherds his people as their king. But that still doesn't fully solve the mystery of these words, does it? Listen again. They will look toward me, whom they have pierced. As one commentator puts it, the mystery this verse creates is almost, and indeed I would, well, apart from the light of the gospel, it is incomprehensible. It tells us that God brings redemption to his people by entering himself into the experience of death. So if the first part of Zechariah, okay, you got Zechariah 11, role-playing the good shepherd, the bad shepherd, people always rejecting. You got chapter 12, first half, which God says, okay, one day I'm going to get rid of all the bad shepherds and I'm going to shepherd you again. But we have the problem that the people rejected Yahweh as their shepherd. That's been their pattern. That's been their habit. How is that going to change? And now we're seeing that, well, in that day, they're going to look toward him whom they pierced. If the first half then describes the day when God will once again shepherd his flock, the second half tells how this is made possible in your handout. The people whose rejection of Yahweh as their shepherd climaxes, culminates, is filled up in their piercing 
of Yahweh with the sword. One day, look toward Yahweh, whom they have pierced. Now look, look at the verse again. Read this. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will, rather than reject me, they will look toward me, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. What is this weeping? What is this mourning? It's the mourning of conviction over sin. And so we see that there is no salvation apart from mourning over sin. There is no salvation apart from the conviction over our sin of rejecting God through unbelief and rebellion against his law. God says in that day they will mourn with conviction over sin. In that day they will weep with the weeping of repentance. What a miracle. What a miracle. And this conviction and this repentance is made possible. How is it made possible? Because Israel's never done this, right? I mean, they're constantly rebelling. They're constantly rejecting their shepherd. How can God then save them and be their shepherd again? By pouring out on his flock the spirit who gives the gift, the grace of supplication. The grace of looking toward Yahweh and calling on his name. That's a work God's going to do in his flock one day. And yet there's even a deeper mystery here. Now look, look at the mystery. Somehow, the pouring out of this Holy Spirit, the spirit of grace and supplication, so the people will now look toward Yahweh, whom they have pierced and call upon his name, somehow, that spirit of grace and supplication is only possible because of the piercing of Yahweh. How will it be possible for me to look toward him and call upon him whom I have pierced? Because he was pierced. To see the mystery a little differently this grace of supplication. What, what do we mean by the grace of supplication? We mean this. If you have cried out to God, that was a gift God gave you. Right? If we have cried out to God, that is of his sovereign, miracle-working grace. Because we don't do that unless God does that work in us. So this grace of supplication is expressed, not simply as the people look toward Yahweh and call upon Yahweh, But brothers and sisters, as the people look specifically towards Yahweh, whom they have pierced. Who do we look to, brothers and sisters? Not just God. We look to God whom we have pierced. We look to Yahweh, who was put to death with the sword in the person of his shepherd. So now we come to chapter 13. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. And it will be 
in that day. And when we hear in that day, do you hear the day we're living in? Already not yet, already not yet, but the day we're living in. In that day, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass away from the land. And today we see this fulfilled in God's new covenant people. What did God do when he made a new covenant? What did he do? He cut off the names of the idols from the land. Because in God's new covenant people, he's created a regenerate new creation that only calls upon his name in purity. There is no member, no true member of the new covenant people today who worships false gods, right? We see this fulfilled in Christ who has cleansed us by the washing of water with the word, the fountain that's been opened, brothers and sisters, for our purifying, for our cleansing. Today we see it fulfilled in the cutting off the names of the idols, the unclean spirits passed out of the land, the salvation of the flock from all the foolish and worthless shepherds depends on the cleansing of the flock from sin and impurity. God just doesn't come and say, okay, I'll be your shepherd again. You might not want me, but, but I'm going to be the shepherd. No, God comes and he says, I'm going to save you from your own sin and impurity. And then I'm going to be your shepherd. And the flock is cleansed from sin and impurity only when they look toward Yahweh, whom they themselves have pierced. Now then, you might wonder why I've been so confident it's a sword. Zechariah chapter 13, 7 to 9, we're given an even deeper glimpse into the mystery. We come to the second half and we hear Yahweh himself speaking these words. So this, this is God talking. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man. The, the, the word, Hebrew word for man here, it's not, the, not your normal word for man. It probably signifies here the mighty man. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the mighty man, my companion. We asked earlier, how it can be that in the piercing of him, we have the piercing of me, Yahweh. Now we see the answer to this question is bound up in the answer to another question. And it's this. Who is the Davidic king and shepherd who could ever be called Yahweh's companion? Who is he? Who is the only Davidic king and shepherd who could ever be called the companion of Yahweh? This is a word that's only used 11 other times in the whole Bible, always in Leviticus. It always assumes in your handout equality. So listen, if a man injures his companion, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Why? Because you're equals. You can't injure him without you then deserving the same thing because you're like the same. Leviticus 19, we see the word companion paired with all sorts of other words of equality. 
You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor shall a person lie against his companion. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. You shall judge your companion in righteousness. You shall not go about as a slander among your people. You shall not stand against the life of your neighbor. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You may surely reprove your companion. You shall not keep your anger against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See the context? See the picture? So now we ask, who is Yahweh's shepherd? He is Yahweh's companion. He is Yahweh's neighbor. He is Yahweh's equal. And it's this shepherd who will be pierced through with the sword and die. According Not by some cosmic accident, but according to Yahweh's own sovereign decree. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. We could continue and pierce him through so that he dies. But it's in the piercing of this shepherd that we see the piercing of Yahweh himself. Because what did God say in the previous chapter? They will look toward him, they will look toward me, whom they pierced. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, so that he dies. He is pierced through and dies. And then they will look toward me, says Yahweh, whom they have pierced. And it's in the piercing of this shepherd, then, that we see the piercing of Yahweh himself. Verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the mighty man, my companion. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. With respect to the Jesus quoting that verse in the New Testament, there's a footnote that will be on the website, but I'm passing that now. When Jesus says, strike the shepherds so the sheep may be scattered, sorry, when Zechariah, when God says that, that's a reference to exile and to judgment. When the sheep are scattered, it's exile and judgment. Now, Jesus saw, saw something else as well. But the ultimate result of this scattering, of this exile, of this judgment, is that a remnant in your handout, a remnant of the flock, is left to be refined, to be purified, and so to be in right covenant relationship with Yahweh their shepherd. So we read in verses 8 to 9. And it will be in all the land, declares Yahweh, that two parts in it will be cut off and breathe their last, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third through the fire and refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name. Remember what Paul said, what Peter said to the Jews? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter preached that in his sermon. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, Yahweh is my God. Now, after all the rejection of the shepherd in chapter 11, When we hear this third part saying, Yahweh is my God. They are my people. We see the shepherd and his flock. 
Where do we see the two parts cut off and breathing their last? In 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed. Jesus himself said that was the fulfillment of these prophecies. We see the third part refined, calling on the name of Yahweh and all the Jews and all the Gentiles too, who mourn and weep over the one they pierced. Who repent of their sin and look in faith toward the one whom they pierced. Now let's come back to John. These things came to pass in order that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, and John knows the whole book. We only did three chapters. It would have been better to go through the whole book just for the sake of this verse. They shall look toward him whom they pierced. Question for you. Well, I'm not asking it as a question. I'm just saying it. If the Roman soldier had never pierced Jesus' side with his spear, you know where I'm going with this, right? If he had never pierced Jesus' side with his spear, the scriptures would still be entirely true and trustworthy. Because why? The scriptures never predicted that the dead body of Jesus would be pierced with a spear by a Roman soldier. Never predicted it. What the scriptures did foretell was the death of Yahweh's shepherd at the hands of his own people not by the Romans, at the hands of his own people, a death described in Zechariah in terms of being pierced through with the sword. Yahweh himself uses the wako sword against my shepherd. So what's the message of Zechariah? If we step back now and we put it all together, listen to this, brothers and sisters, let it be edifying to you. The message of Zechariah is this, that Yahweh's shepherd his companion, his equal, would be put to death by his own people. And that as a result of his death, the spirit of grace and of supplication is going to be poured out on the people and they will look toward Yahweh, whom they had put to death in the person of his shepherd. And they would mourn and they would weep in true conviction over their sin, in true repentance. And they would call on his name and a fountain would be opened for them for sin and for impurity. And the people would be refined and purified so as to live now righteously. The the names of the idols cut off from their mouth. They would live now righteously and enjoy the blessings of being in right covenant relationship with Yahweh, their shepherd, of sheep following the shepherd. The Roman soldiers' piercing of the dead body of Jesus was a 
providentially ordained God in, in his sovereignty ordained that circumstance to point us back to Zechariah so that we would be reminded that the shepherd dies. He, he was, as it were, put to death by the sword so that we might see in Jesus Yahweh's shepherd. Who do you see in Jesus? So that we might see in Jesus Yahweh's equal and the one through whom, through him, pierced to the death. We might see through him the spirit of grace and supplication poured out on me so that even as I look to him and call upon his name, I know I look and call upon his name because his piercing made that possible in me. John's point then is not the bare fact of the piercing. And if we don't get anything else, we, we get this. We don't, we, don't, we don't get to like just the bare fact of it said he'd be pierced. He was pierced. Cool. No. If the point was the bare fact of the piercing, there would have been no true fulfillment. Because how many others were pierced? Put to death with the sword. John's point is the salvation that is yours. The salvation that is ours. When we, his point is not the piercing, it's the looking toward. What does he quote? They shall look toward him whom they pierce. We emphasize the pierced. Certainly that's, that's what draws us back to Zechariah. But what John is primarily emphasizing is the look toward him whom they pierced. His point is the salvation that is ours when we look toward him who was pierced, not simply by the spear of a Roman soldier, but by the sword of his own people. And not simply by the sword of his own people, but by the sword of Yahweh himself. John's point is the salvation that is ours when we mourn over him whom we pierced, we pierced by our sin in true conviction for our sin and when we weep over him in true repentance. We cannot look to Jesus and understand that we pierced him, that he was pierced for our sins without grasping then the true gravity of our sin and mourning over it in repentance. John's point is that having looked toward him whom we pierced with true repentance and saving faith, what happens then, brothers and sisters? The fountain that was opened now cleanses us from all sin and impurity and sets us free to live a new life of righteousness. How good it is to, to have that fountain washing over us every day that we live. John's point is that having looked toward him whom we pierced, we now enjoy the blessings of being in right relationship with Yahweh our shepherd. What does Jesus, what does the name Jesus mean? It literally means Yahweh saves. He is our shepherd. 
so we are his people, his flock. He is our God, our good shepherd, forever and ever and ever. That's the ending of that passage in Zechariah. This is the message of John 19.37. This is the message of the piercing of Jesus' side. He who has seen has borne witness. His witness is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that there's not a single person here, not a single soul in this room who is not at this moment looking towards you, whom we pierced in the person of your shepherd, Jesus Christ. Lord, may the spirit of grace, uh, the grace of supplication, of, 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 of calling out to you, rather than spurning and rejecting you, may that spirit of grace and supplication be poured out on your people this morning. May it be poured out on me. That we would be enabled to mourn with conviction for our sin and to weep with repentance. And then to know in the midst of our weeping the joys of the fountain for sin and for impurity. And to know that that all of these things are made possible because the sword awoke even at your own command against your own equal and companion and he was pierced. He was he was put to death on our account. On our account, mine. As we sing in a moment, I pray that I pray that we not esteem our sin lightly when we know that it was my sin which demanded his piercing, his death. Although we praise you, we praise you that we do see fulfillment here. It's a fulfillment that's so, so rich, so beautiful, so mysterious and profound that it calls me and it calls us, it calls us to believe, not simply in the sense of believing a fact, but to lay our lives down before you in, in faith and obedience. I pray that your word does this work in us. I know that no word of man can. It's only your word. And we, we pray now as we come to sing that these songs will be the response of our hearts and that we'll prepare our hearts to come to this table and eat and drink together. In Jesus' name, amen.